What's up guys, welcome to Desolation Radio, it's Dan, Sam and Nath. Hello. Hi mate. How's it going lads? Yeah, real good, got back, back pains. Nath has been, uh, well we're starting now, it's 20 past 9. <laughs> 20 Nath, past we've 9 been trying Friday. To, been trying to click Nathan's uh, back for like the last hour or something like that. Um, but in all type of positions. None yeah, of us can do it And then we tried to click my back. And now he's lying on the floor. <laughs> is it is it working out on that? It's alright. The other thing, uh, so we do record in Bridgend, Sam's never been to Bridgend, and we just drove in, and as we came in, Sam said, oh, it's quite nice, mate, and then we pulled up, and a lad walked past straight away, just, it's almost like, you couldn't make it, turned around, started weeing in the middle of the street, look, whilst waving at me and Sam, <laughs> and then he just drops to his, uh, drops to the floor and starts doing press-ups while looking at us, and then walked past me, and I go, right. And that that person was me. And that was Nathan. that was Nathan. That's why he put your back out. It was, isn't it? It's such a big piss. Have I already said what we're going to talk about? Right today we're going to be tra- today we're going to be talking about the Welsh language. You know, do we need it? No, <laughs> obviously no, not. So we're actually going to be talking today. Um, we've been wanting. I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. It's been based on this is how current we are. It was based on the faux manufactured outrage that occurred when. Wales Online or the Western Mail decided to run a story that the the Godshead, which is basically at the board behind the Eisteddfod, claimed that the Godshead snubbed the Welsh football team and wouldn't give them an award. Recently, then we had Alan Cairns on Question Time, who just blithely said that Welsh language communities were sort of, you know, all involved in burning down second homes, things like that. I mean, aside from the fact that that is unambiguously like a good thing, um, <laughs> the fact is he was just smeared Welsh language communities but what was also interesting about when Ken's did it and obviously Leanne Wood correctly picked him up on it mm-hmm. was that he obviously saw that as a common sense view like well yeah. well, what it's obvious that Welsh speakers mm. and Welsh language communities are full of nutters he's a Welsh speaker himself though, he, he is yeah but he's from the Vale and so, so what we're going to talk about today we're going to be talking about the attitudes really of the Welsh language uh, towards the Welsh language in Wales and where they've come from so Stephen May is an academic who's one of the few voices within social linguistics that adopts like quite a rat. Well, it's not even radical. Adopts like a critical response. He's one of the guys that thinks, well, actually, why is this happening? As opposed to just writing stuff down, because you know the whole point of doing research isn't just to write what people say. It's about analysing. Oh, actually, where's that come from? You know, to criticising the narrative. So Stephen May says any minority language must overcome two key difficulties if it's to be. Reju- you know, successfully rejuvenated and instituted at the state level, which is obviously something that's facing the Welsh language at the moment. He says, one is institutional. So how can the minority language be legitimated and institutionalised in the public or, public or civic realm, you know, i.e. in the public sector, in Welsh government, you know, bilingual road signs, things like that. How can that happen when it's always been regarded as the preserve of the majority language, which is English? And he says the other one is attitudinal. So how can a minority language gain sufficient support from majority language speakers or English language speakers in Wales for it to be accepted and spoken regularly as a state language? So in this podcast, we're going to be basically talking about attitudes. So where attitudes come from, right? So, I mean, Nathan and I, we've probably got... I mean, Nathan and I aren't Welsh speakers. Nathan's a Welsh learner, aren't you? Yeah. How's it going? It's, it's going all right, actually. Yeah, it's bien, pretty good. Bien, yeah. Bien, yeah. Magnifique. Well. How, how do you say, um, I, I'm washing my belly? Uh, I'm washing my. What belly. is it with you two in this weird phrase? <laughs> bellies need washing. Uh, Amochlis, amochlai ebola. I wash my belly with amochlai ebola. What do you wash it with? Just uh, soap. Oh. <laughs> a rag on a stick. I wash myself with a rag <laughs> on a stick. And Sam is fluent in Welsh. You would say first language Welsh. Uh, I speak Welsh at home, yeah. So I'd say first language. Okay. So we've got a. a all the spectrum, all the spectrum, and non Welsh, you know, non Welsh speaking me have tried unsuccessfully to learn it. You know, Nathan's learning at the moment, and you know, Sam's first language speaker. So, it's worth going back. I think first to this Gorsedd yeah. issue. If you recall, if you followed the Euros, and you know, like us and you, obviously over the moon at how amazingly well the Welsh football team d- did. It 
it was almost only a matter of time before they could find a way of, I don't know, ruining the, everything for me. And what happened was, Wales Online, and there's a dude called Delm Parfit, which sounds like a dessert, like an, has come to life, doesn't it? Like um, It's like a really low-budget Disney film. Delm Parfit, well, like, that's the name of the, the hero, isn't it? Yeah, like or the, the film as well. It's one of those, like, straight uh, video ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, Delm, who, like, blocked me, everyone, after they said, like, hey, why are you writing stuff like this without any justification, wrote this story, and it basically said that the God said, which, again, is, like, the board behind the aesthetic, had rejected calls, quote-unquote calls, for the Welsh football team to be recognised in the Eisteddfod for, for all their achievements on the football pitch and, therefore, their contribution towards the Welsh language. Now, obviously, you know, the Welsh football team's visibility and the FAW's, like, good use of Welsh in their marketing mm-hmm. has definitely promoted the Welsh language. The problem is, is that, the you know, the... the well, fir- firstly, the Eisteddfod's not about just giving away... Mm-hmm. tokenistic gestures you know like you know, it's about actual proper contribution you know I'm not saying that's not a proper contribution but it's more about literary I would say and you know literally but even kind of helping in more rural communities yeah so people are actually going out and doing yeah. this groundwork right um, my, uh, my dad's choir won the Ice Therapod won't you no way yeah from Jen uh, I think he was part of my steak ones way back when class yes I've never been I will go I've done um, born in what choir. I won the art Entry in year seven in Portugal for GCSE. That's national. No, no, not GCSE for for Portugal combat. You're you're fast track with your art ability, weren't you? Straight to year eight. Yeah. Um, No, yeah, it wasn't GCSE. It was like, and I've been living off that for a while. Past glory. So, what they'd said in in essence in this story was that there had been calls. Now you can't see me doing air quotes, but the interesting thing with this, so that that there had been calls implies that there was a massive groundswell of public opinion that was asking. And clamouring for the Welsh football team to be recognised by the Godshead, who then rejected, rejected them it. for you know not being you know Welsh enough. This is then easily spun into this idea that people who are involved in the Stedford, the Godshead, Welsh language gatekeepers don't view the Welsh lang- Welsh football team as either worthy or as Welsh enough. Things like that. I think you were reading out that Telegraph article, Sam, which yeah. was saying that you know. So, so the the headline of the Telegraph article was. Uh, Wales football team snubbed by Archdruid for not being Welsh enough. Well, this is it. So this is so. What's interesting about this, the idea of the calls, you look back and you think, well, actually, I don't know anyone that was clamouring for that. Firstly, because the the nominations for the awards February. closed in February, you know, long before the Euros even started. So that's like we were saying, that's like going into McDonald's at like three in the afternoon asking for breakfast and then <laughs> kicking off because you know it's when you don't get it. Everyone, knows, but everyone, so it had nothing to. Do, I mean, aside from the fact that Godshead doesn't take nominations like that and it's not something you know so the call these calls these mass calls that no one was making that's the interesting thing so what that probably was is someone in Wales Online Western Mail ringing up someone associated with this service saying would you consider accepting the Welsh you know the Welsh football team as uh, candidates for this and they would say no because nominations nominations have closed in February that then says oh it's a snub that's Mm -hmm. then saying no it's a snub Regardless of the actual facts around the story, and this is a, this is a sort of a, an amazing example of the, the nature of the press in Wales in itself, because that, for me, has got to be an editorial decision. Someone in the Western Mail or someone in Wales Online or Trinity Mirror that said, you know what, let's go and pick a fight with Stedford mm-hmm. and let's try to find a way of stirring up a hornet's nest. Because then that story gets passed from the Welsh papers, it gets picked up by the, um, the Telegraph, and as Sam said, the thing that came out of it was this picture of Welsh language speakers as intolerant, as elitist. elitist, as viewing other people as not properly Welsh, and it's absolute rubbish. Alan Cairns, as I said, made that ridiculous remark in question time, which Dan would call him up for. Again, the interesting thing is the fact that he thought that was just normal. So, what we want to talk about is these these attitudes towards Welsh language. This, you know, the Welsh language Welsh speakers as being intolerant and as like you know Welsh language nutters, which is what people call them. I think the reason Wales Online can stir these things up from time to time is because they know they've got purchase amongst the general population because they know they're playing to a deep-seated fear and deep-seated latent stereotypes and you know, this a narrative about Welsh language speakers in Wales um, that they can just tap into. It's like a fear of the other. Um, so what we want to talk about today is really is like where those attitudes come from. So we're doing a bit of historical analysis, you know, the nature of the Welsh language vis-a-vis the British state and how these things 
these things don't just happen. You know, the, the, these things. Well, you can't analyze the status or how people perceive a language without looking at how it's just yeah, the history of the language context, and how it's been discursely yeah. constructed. I.e., how it's been represented in the media, how it's been represented in academia and history and things like that. So, Sam, first we're going to do our regular stats thing. Um, so, just yeah, give us some stats about the Welsh language, man. Cool. So, the the first census was from eighteen ninety one. But that was very hard to get uh, stats for. So the first stats I got was from... No one, could, no one could write back then. Like, Pardon? No one could write. No one could write back I've then. I've just got a terrible vision of like times back, the times back then. That's but it's almost like like a huge cut-off date past a, like a certain day, isn't it? Like uh, certain dates. It was like terrible. Anything past 1900 was basically like... Awful. Yeah, like, medieval. The, the Black Death. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Victorian times, slums. Well, that's why we need the blue books, isn't it? Because then okay, yeah, uh, backwards. Right. And then uh, introduce colour to Wales as well. It was all black and white before then. Yeah. The Parthay films, like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, in 1911, 43.5% of the population of Wales could speak Welsh. And then if you break that down, well, perhaps not remarkably, but 200,000 people in Wales could only speak Welsh. They could not speak English. And a further 800,000 were bilingual, could speak English and Welsh. So, yeah, if you go back to 1911, we'd already reached the target of uh, a million speakers by 2050. Just so to achieve it, they've just got to go back in time now. Yeah, pretty much. So then if we fast forward to 2001, uh, which was kind of seen as... Make the, a jump. Yeah, well, kind of... See that at the time as the reawakening of the Welsh language was starting to surge again. At this time, there was 582,000 Welsh speakers, which accounted for 20, 20.8% of the population. Surprisingly then, if you go look at the next census of 2011... The number had actually dropped to five hundred sixty-two thousand, or nineteen percent. So in that two years, there's nearly a two percent drop uh, in those who that could speak Welsh. Um, I've also then broken it down by region. So in twenty eleven, it's gone above and beyond this week, isn't it? Yes, yeah. with these stats, went back in time, interview people. <laughs> <laughs> My man. In twenty eleven, stats, Sam. Sam stats. We could do like a little thing, yeah. Sam's corner. Sam's Sam corner. Stats corner. Yeah. Uncle Sam's corner. Yeah. Sam Scat corner. Beautiful bop. You're so weird, like. <laughs> Shall I carry on? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> in 2011, 41% of all Welsh speakers lived in four counties: so Anglesey, Gwynedd, Ceredigion, and Carmarthenshire. And then if you break that down again and you kind of look at these places and the percentage of people in these counties that can speak Welsh. So in Anglesey, 57.2%. Gwynedd, 654 uh, Carmarthen in 2011 was 439 which is the first time ever in its history it's been under 50% of the population. So in 2001, it's 50.3. So there's nearly 7% drop in 10 years. So what was significant? I mean, obviously what you're saying is a picture of essentially inexorable decline over the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. But what happened in 2001 was basically a false dawn mm-hmm. because that was the first time that like, the, the numbers had either stayed constant, constant or, or gone or up, increased, especially yeah. amongst younger people, mm-hmm. which was obviously due to the legislation around the Welsh language and education, which we'll talk about in a minute. But basically what you're saying is that it's now back to doom and gloom then we're st- you know they're still on decreasing essentially. Um, it, it's it's interesting because then if you look at places like Monmouth, Blaenau, Cardiff, these places, uh, you know uh, that aren't kind of associated with being Wel- uh, Welsh speaking. Between two thousand and one and two thousand and eleven, uh, in Newport there's a seven percent increase in Welsh speakers. Six percent in Blaenau, six percent in Monmouth, five percent in Caerphilly. But the big issue is there was a 9% decrease in places like Ceredigion, 4% in Carmarthen. So basically the places where Welsh is a living language, language. and the language is a community, yeah. which you need for it to you know, stay alive, basically. It's, yeah. it's in decline because my pet issue that we'll talk about in another topic, because no one is addressing immigration, and they, they mm-hmm. won't. So that's going to sort of continue. Okay, so what I think that the... What's interesting now, and we'll, again, we'll do a little bit of history in a minute, but since devolution, the there's been an assumption that Welsh has sort of been legitimated amongst the Welsh public, and, and you know what I mean by that is that there's been a sea change in attitudes that people have a really positive attitude towards Welsh. There's been loads of sociological studies of, of English language speakers who have got very positive view of Welsh, who say it's very instrumental to their sense of Welshness. So you don't have to be a Welsh language 
speaker, you will say, well, I feel very Welsh because I'm proud of the language, even though I don't speak it, right? Yeah. So there's an assumption that since devolution, there's, you know, and Welsh language has been institutionalised, there's improved. But what I think, I think there's a tension because the way that people reacted to that Wales Online Story, piece yeah. and the Alan Cairns thing to a lesser extent, that, for me, shows that I, I think that a lot of this like goodwill towards the language is either empty or hollow or overblown completely because that showed me there's still massive attitude problems about the Welsh language, um, about its status, and we'll talk about this. So uh, May, he says that, you know, for a language to become legitimated, it's all about changing the status effect you know, attached to the language in question. He says, in effect, a minority and ethnolinguistics group, cultural vitality and its linguistic vitality is related to the degree of status and institutionalised support it enjoys. But he says, but basically what you need, you need the majority, i.e. the non-minority language speak majority English language speakers in Wales, they basically have to have changed their attitudes towards the language. And he says, that's very hard. So they basically said that since the evolution, the status of the language has changed. I think that outrage surrounding that mm-hmm. story suggests that it hasn't changed. It may have changed in some ways, but there are still... Uh, sort of, I would say, reactionary and regressive attitudes still present towards the Welsh language. Well, so, Coupland uh, spoke a lot about this in one of his articles, and he said that the best way of kind of correlating Welsh language with identity was whether people were supportive of it, even if they didn't speak Welsh. Yeah. And he said something ridiculous, like between seventy and eighty percent of people were now supportive of the language. Yeah. So then, when you have a Secretary of State. You yeah. can kind of say these, you know, throwaway comments. I think it was all it's 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 all everything got everyone got carried away by the hysteria in nineteen ninety seven and it was assumed that the Welsh language is safe now, you know, it's not gonna go extinct. anyway. Let's trace the you know, the history of the the Welsh language vis a vis the British state and look at how its status has evolved. Because I think what we'll see is the roots of this the attitudes and the that narrative that that Delm Parfit article was talking about, you're basically implying that Welsh language people are, are nutters and elitists. We can see how that narrative has gradually grown, right? So, history 101. <laughs> uh, just love, again, so theme again is just me reading from a from a sheet. Yeah. <laughs> reading from other people's uh, work. Okay. All right, so we're going to go all the way back. What, <laughs> like, a brief history of Wales from... The 13th century onwards by Dan Evans. But we're going to cover absolutely everything. <laughs> Wales was brought increasingly into the... I feel again like I should have a... You know, like a John Davis, like that, the old Welsh historian. May you rest in peace. R.I.P. You know, that the gravitas that uh, like a, a, the people that read... If you're going to read an audio book... Yeah, The sort of act you'd bring in... Anyway. Like a Cumberbatch type thing. Well, I can't do it. I mean, anyway, Wales was brought increasingly into the ambit... What is that? Like the orbit of, of English rule from the t- from the time of Edward I, 1239 1307. The subsequent colonisation of Wales by England in the 14th and 15th centuries led to Wales's increasing Anglicisation, particularly with respect to trade. So, you know, stuff was raw materials increasingly moved out of Wales, things like that. So, whilst much of Wales continued to speak Welsh, a language spoken since the 6th century and for which written records exist from the 8th century. Uh, Welsh and English bilingualism became an increasing feature in parts of Wales. But he says, these developments were the prelude to Wales's formal incorporation within the British state in the 16th century. So you have the Act of Union in 1536, and which was ratified again in 1542, instigated by Henry VIII. Well, first Henry VIII, then uh, first Henry VII. Um, well, that history, isn't it? Pretty bad, yeah. So the Act of Union situated Wales within the political, legal and administrative jurisdiction of the British Crown and Parliament. This is the key thing. So this was unambiguously, an, an and you know, people call it an act of union. John Davis actually called it like an annexation, or you know, just dressed up with some legislations. Because if you think of annexations all over the world and invasions and stuff all over the world, they will obviously then dress it up and say, "Well, this is an well, act of." They'll always install some puppet like in Africa and say, "Well, this is an act of union between our countries." So the nomenclature is absolutely ridiculous, and the fact that some Welsh historians have taken it at face value and said, "Oh, this is a union of equals." John Davis says an annexation, so that's what it was. As a result of these acts, this is the key bit, the Welsh language is prescribed from the courts, i.e. banned, and from all official... <laughs> and I'm not assuming people don't know what that means, but like uh, I don't know what it means. So, um, And from all official domains, in favour of English, while virtually all separate Welsh institutions were eliminated. So this is when we say today, 
Wales has no civil society, separate, has a separate legal system, it's because it was abolished and incorporated in, into an English one from which Welsh was banned. The Now, banning Welsh in that way didn't affect the majority of Welsh people who were, you know, landless peasants and things like that. So um, it only affected the people, like the elites that held yeah. property in position. But um, this is the key. With the dismantling of any separate institutional, you know, like I said, apparatus in Wales, um, the establishment of a political norm, i.e. Welsh is now, long, is now banned in courts and English is the only language of the courts, a political norm soon becomes a powerful social norm as well. So these things gradually filter down um, and affect the status of a language. So what happens? The Welsh elite gradually become assimilated in English class and political system. You know, the gentry, a Welsh gentry sort of sell out and just accept it. They start adopting the English language and abandoning Welsh, which, as they would because they need to use it in the courts and they need to use it to maintain their sort of elite status. It's the only way you can make it in Welsh. Exactly. So, in the latter respect, the Welsh-landed gentry were the first to adopt English as first additional and then as a, subst- a substitute language. And this pattern was well established by the 18th century. Just casually jumped ahead 200 years, nothing happened. No, the, nothing years. was it. Um, Never stood still for about uh, 200 years. So then, inevitably, and this is the key bit, the continued use of Welsh by the majority of the remainder of the Welsh population gradually became inevitably equated with backwardness and inferiority, and that's like Kevin Morgan said this. Kevin Morgan, uh, Kenneth, Kenneth, Kenneth Morgan writes then, Wales continue to be regarded as a remote tribal backwater, economically backwards, adhering obstinately to its antique language in the face of the march of intellect. So that's what the effect ultimately is. It's a gradual deterioration in the status of Welsh, associated with backwardness, like within Welsh. We've moved forward now another 100 years, and we're going to, a bit of more of a famous example these sentiments about welsh being a low status sort of backwards language you know associated with rurality with like the peasantry things like that were reinforced in the 19th century by an influential review of the state of education in wales which was published in 1847 and subsequently became known as a treachery of the blue books or what's your pronunciation like for that brad boy <laughs> So, Brad's blue books. So while the report, Shout out to the blue books burner. <laughs> so while the report made some well-merited criticisms of Welsh education at the time, Nathan, you've got some examples of this, haven't you? Oh yeah. So um, there's this pretty good book called Language of the Blue Books, and it's like a about, reflection about of the, the report. It is, yeah. I was surprised and disappointed, <laughs> but it was relevant for uh, today's episode. So the state of education in Wales was quite bad. There were reports of. Um, one one pupil who thought that the Queen of England was Prince Albert, and <laughs> and another one, and another two kids. One of them thought they lived in Scotland. The other one thought they lived in Africa. Amazing. And so because they were Africans. Yeah. Well, well she thought lived there. Didn't know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it could mean. I mean, let's be honest, I mean, it could have been that those inspectors have wandered into like a bit special class you know, yeah. for, and they've extrapolated that to, it's quite a funny image you know that they're walking in like you young man what's who's the queen who I, is the queen of England I live and in this, Scotland and this lad with this lad with like cross eyes go oh it's um uh, uh, Prince Albert and they're like get out or like cane this boy think Gwyn think where, do, where, you boy, where are we right now? Africa. Africa. Africa, sir. Yeah, and it's just like, you can imagine, like, horrible, like, savages, the, like, get us out of here. Anyway, um, so they were valid criticisms. Apparently. They were, and the, the teacher Maybe was... Maybe couldn't speak English, though. Maybe they were very, very... There, there was, with them, some of the, uh, apparently, <laughs> the pronunciations by the teachers themselves. Mm-hmm. They were saying, like, true. they don't know how to pronounce English words, but these words were associated with, like, quite high class. Like, oh. someone didn't know how to pronounce the Greek god of rivers or some shit. It's just like, I don't come across Nile. That. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but again, like, the, the, the teachers as well, they weren't, like properly trained they were just people sometimes taking on part time jobs like sharp have, tools in the box like. well in some cases you'd have somebody just working on a pair of shoes while they taught the class teaching them how to make shoes they weren't teaching mathematics <laughs> through hot cobbling yeah it's one of those kind of like goodwill hunting type um, you know, not love... goodwill hunting what's the other one I'm thinking of with Robin Williams Dead Poet Society I was I... going to say Hook <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, okay so okay so 
there were apparently you know, well-founded criticisms of the Welsh, you know, um, or you know, Welsh education system, or it could be that they went into the wrong class and just went, you know, had a meltdown. Anyway, the point is, the inspectors then attributed this like so-called backwardsness to the Welsh language and culture. Basically, they said that was the main reason that Wales uh, Welsh kids were thick, which is actually something that is continues today generally people look at the PISA tables at least they're constant but people look at the PISA tables and will say oh well Wales are doing so badly because they pump all their money into teaching Wales blah blah anyway but that's another episode anyway could I, could I just bring in a caveat here you can um, the, the main uh, coming back to your you know past point um, the main inspector was called uh, William Williams who was um, an MP in England but as you can tell from his name Will twice like yeah was a was yeah, a Welshman himself Will. Um, which comes back to this idea that if you wanted to make it in life, you had to get rid of your Welsh identity and become embedded within the British. Okay, so what happened then? They wrote this report about you know the, how the Welsh language like basically retards uh, Welsh uh, education. Subsequently, <laughs> the report was to provide the intellectual background and rationale for the 1870 Education Act, and this is very important. The 1870 Education Act. <laughs> Established the joint. Is, do it again, do it again. No, the 1870 Education Act established the joint state elementary system in England and Wales, and this is the key, which formally excluded Welsh from the pedagogy and practice of Welsh schools. So it said you, you're not allowed to use Welsh in school. That was later sort of taken up, you know, the, the Welsh not things like that, which is maybe. Uh, I went on a school trip to somewhere similar to St Fagans, and uh, it was in primary school. Was it St Fagans? Maybe St Fagans. But um, there was like, you know, uh, there was this bit where you were all like Welsh pupils and then like the head yeah. teacher, yeah. yeah, the head teacher was like, you boy, are you speaking Welsh? And he said it to me. Nope. I was like, nope. <laughs> but I got the Welsh knot for yeah. the day. But wasn't it with Welsh knot? You, if you Welsh had it. Nut. Nut. <laughs> if you had it, you had to kind of just snitch on someone else for speaking Welsh so you didn't get the, oh, even worse, like grass. It, it. it was apparently that the... You'd have it, and it was the last person at the end of the day that yeah. was wearing it. So changed. you had like a, an incentive basically to dog so, someone else. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. To worst. snitch. Snitches get stitches. Like. Yeah. Okay, so the Education Act prohibited the use of Welsh in schools. And so this is the and this is the problem, is that the, the banning of Welsh and, what he says, the related high status or valorisation of English within state education continued well into the 20th century. Um, you know, it's only been the last 50 years... That Welsh has effectively re-emerged as a school language. I mean, we now take for granted that there's Welsh language schools. It's mm. almost unbelievable to think about how. Apparently, the first Welsh medium school in Wales was in Bridgend. I thought it was in Aberystwyth. I've, you know, I've said this to a few people, <laughs> and they've said it. No, I thought like, oh no, I thought it was in my stag, and they've corrected me. I read it in a book. What so, book? Um, the Nathan's dodgy facts. Yeah. Uh, what book was it called? The phenomenon of Welshness. I think it was in Aberystwyth, but we'll clarify next week. If and whoever gets it right wins the Snickers. Yes, I do like Snickers. But I mean, on the on this point, there wasn't a, a, a Welsh language school in Cardiff, the capital, until the seventies. Pretty mad, isn't it? You know, this this is a really new phenomenon. All this does in education, yeah, it establishes a clear hierarchy of English over Welsh. Okay, and okay, the um, Trump coming in, and um, along with the accompanying belief that in the English language lay the route to social and economic mobility. And that's the key. It's how it changes. We, we think of legislation as just like a law or something mm. like that. But these things gradually impact on the common sense and how people perceive the language. So it's, there's basically this idea that, you know, a monolingual English education is best. But also there's the idea that even retaining Welsh is actively a problem, is disadvantageous. Mm. So it's... You know, speaking Welsh is holding you back, and that's why you have, I think, that generation of people that actively chose to not pass Welsh on to their, which is a recurring theme in Welsh language research on the language. There's always that misgeneration where they say, "Well, we didn't pass it on because we thought it would hinder them to have the Welsh language." So it was actually related to that. um, My grandparents was German, one's Ukrainian, but they purposely didn't teach their children. My uncle, my mum. Uh, German or Ukrainian, so they wouldn't stand out so much in school. Yeah, and the, especially yeah. after like the war and so. Forth, and what really. we've and what we've got a yeah, it's not probably not wasn't no, no. the best idea. Like we're going to jump again now to the twentieth century. So um, 
how did Welsh, you know, we've just said that, you know, Welsh, we, we sort of take Welsh language education and things like that for granted. We, we now know that we see Welsh on road signs, we see Welsh on, you know, sometimes on TV. And, and check out your option. Yeah, so Welsh. You know, Welsh has been institutionalised, you know, in, the, in the, the sort of nascent, like, devolved Welsh state. Um, but how do we get here, given that, you know, if we look at what's just happened, like the Blue Books and, and the low status of Welsh in the early part of the 20th century? Um, so Stephen May again, thanks, like, let's start paying him royalties for this, actually. Um, <laughs> so he says there's three reasons why Welsh has sort of got to the status it, or has got where it is now, as to what status it is, we'll discuss that later. He says the first thing is sort of legislation and on the policy level. And the first one was the establishment in 1964, or the first breakthrough rather, was the establishment in 1964 of the Welsh office, which was part of the you know, just wider administration of the British state. They've obviously got to give concessions to the periphery, don't they? Um, so originally the Welsh office was envisaged as like a symbolic role, really, not actually going to do anything for Wales. Like, well, give, you know, give them a Welsh office or something. Once it established, it gradually began to sort of take on life its own and get more and more power and, and, and try to push for more and more legislation, including uh, things related to the, the Welsh language. And he says that these measures in the Welsh office began to lay the basis for a bilingual state. This included in the 1967 Welsh Language Act, which offered equal validity for English and Welsh in Wales, which is quite an ambiguous term, equal validity, but it's nonetheless obviously great progress if you go back 100 years and Welsh was actively banned and seen as terrible. Well, I've got a quote from the Welsh Language Act... Uh, which kind of 67 67 which my mate yeah. yeah that's favourite Welsh language eh? which kind of go to this ambiguity again you know um, all it says is it is proper that the Welsh language should be freely used by those who desire in legal proceedings so it's that's all it yeah, is. Right, okay. so it's it, it's progress but it's you know yeah. willfully ambiguous right move forward again 1988 education reform act which incorporated a specifically Welsh and Welsh language dimension into the newly established National Curriculum of England and Wales. Then you have the 1993 Welsh Language Act, which extended the 1967 Act considerably in its support for Welsh in the public domain. So this is it. So it's basically saying that Welsh can and should be used in like the branches of the state, um, essentially. Um, in short, the institutional infrastructure, like this support, you know, you need mechanisms to support the infrastructure uh, administered by the Welsh Office, came to be increasingly identified with the re-emergence of the Welsh language into the public sphere so that's the first reason it's sort of these are all interconnected obviously um the second development was the role of direct action and protest so we wouldn't have got the welsh language would be nowhere really today without the activities of well the welsh language movement in the 60s so, you know this movement around with the welsh language society in the 60s it was established in 1962 it was committed to direct non-violent action on behalf of the welsh language so this was a a program of like marches, sit-ins, occupying buildings, you know, very much in the spirit of the student radicalism of the 60s. Um and it contributed, you know, in some in some ways to the establishment of Welsh language media, notably uh, S4C, to the establishment of the Welsh language board and to an increasing demand for public services available in Welsh. So when we talk back about the legislation we've just mentioned, that doesn't just emerge. Mm-hmm you know, out of the ether, out of the benevolence of the British state, that is brought about as a response to the activities of the direct action of the Welsh language movement. And, and you know, it works. Yeah. <laughs> you know, direct action works. And a third development, um, which again is related, was a re-emergence of Welsh as a medium of instruction in schools. And this started again. Again, it's nothing to do with this, this, you know, the message here, the state isn't going to give you these things. It was initially parents setting up their own private Welsh language schools. Mm. And this was, gradually grew and grew and grew and was sort of the manifestation of Welsh in education was the 1988 Education Reform Act in Wales which allowed for the formal sort of development of Welsh language schools. So I think we just went over this really quickly. I just want to illustrate the point. So in 1536 it became illegal to speak Welsh in courts yeah. and that was not changed until 1967. That's over 400 years where it was Really, well, it was illegal to speak Welsh. Uh, can I bring it back to something? Because um, originally, cause we talked earlier about the colonisation of Wales, that it was done through religion, wasn't it? And in order yeah, to do that, religion. you had to trans- they translated the Bible yeah. into Welsh, which ironically helped keep the Welsh language yeah, alive. Was... We've got the gradual 
a reversal in many ways of this this attitude you know attitude towards Welsh and obviously with devolution the Welsh languages seem to be part of you know part and parcel of the de- de- you know the, the devolved settlement mm-hmm. um Welsh has now got an urban base in Cardiff so we've got you know the traditional Welsh speaking areas within the Frogham Rike which is you know the the Welsh speaking Hartlands as well as Sam said continue to decline um although they are still proportionately the main strongholds of the language yeah, even though they the are the majority of um, they are still the place with the highest proportion of Welsh speakers but the decline has been quite rapid but the majority of Welsh speakers now in absolute terms are actually found in urban and suburban areas you know most notably in Cardiff which is now the administrative centre of the Welsh language um and the growing urbanisation again this will even me I'm not again this isn't me um the growing urbanisation of the Welsh language highlights significance of the institutionalisation of Welsh, particularly in the public sector in Cardiff and around like the devolution around the new Welsh state, for of better words. And this is the key, he says, where the ability to speak Welsh is beginning once again to be viewed as a form of linguistic and cultural capital. So there's the argument is now that Welsh has gone from being a very low status language that you had to get rid of and you had to like abandon if you want to get ahead English way forward. There's now almost gone the other way and people now believe that if you want to get ahead in life you have to speak Welsh. So let's talk about the change in status of the Welsh language. Maybe the Welsh language is um because it's now been, you know, allegedly institutionalised in a new Welsh state, has it now become has the status of the Welsh language changed? Remember earlier I was saying that that article suggests to me by Dallin Parfit that there's some people still have negative attitudes towards the Welsh language. Definitely, with evolution, there was an assumption that that the, the the attitude towards Welsh now is good. There's been a big change in the attitude, and everyone sort of welcomes it, things like that. But you know, is is that really the, is that really the case? One of the things I want to talk about is some amazing work by Simon Brooks, and it's about and again, this is all building up to what we think the common sense attitude towards Welsh language are. Simon Brooks has basically said that with evolution, when the Welsh language was instituted, he said people who have a massive problem with the Welsh language, just still see it as a barrier to progress, who still see it as associated with Welsh nationalists, uh, things like that. He says that he says their criticism could no longer be overt. You can't now say, hey, the Welsh language is a load of crap, because it was now seen as basically being part of the devolved settlement. So he says what happened is they started criticising the language in more subtle ways. And what he says is one of the main ways they did this was he kept talking about this new uh, way of doing politics in Wales in a way that was civic. So he kept, there was this, if you think about that back in 1999, or, or 1997, 1999, people kept talking about creating a new sense of Welsh identity, a civic Welsh identity. Now this civic identity is a bit of a nebulous term, but in, I guess, in the most basic terms, what it means is, traditionally when people think of themselves as Welsh or Scottish or Irish, things like that, they base it on things like birthplace or where the you know the, par- the parents are from, uh, culture, blood language, mm-hmm. culture, and for critics of nationalism, they say that well, national identity in that sense is exclusionary because it leads to people who it's an essentialist view of la- of of a, an identity, which means that for example, people will say someone who wasn't born in Wales can never be Welsh. You can never join. The you group can never join our club, group, basically, yeah. because you're either in it or you're out. But advocates of a civic nationalism basically say that anyone could be part of the it's like almost this happy clappy idea of nationalism which says that you become part of a nation if you want to be part of the nation and you instead of clinging on to things like race language uh culture birthplace things like that you look at things like shared values political values things like openness and tolerance yeah, institutions like the law, respect for the law, things like that. I mean, the the good example is uh, the most well, the two most well known kind of civic nationalisms is uh, France, and you know, to be French, you just really need to supposedly agree in the you know the ideas of Secularism, liberty, yeah. fraternity, you know, etc. The other one is the USA, yeah. where to be um, an American citizen, you need to kind of devote yourself to the constitution yeah so it, those places are said to be it's nothing to do with uh language of birthplace or anything like that basically anyone can be mm-hmm. okay so that that is what basically happened during 99 so this narrative emerges about civic 
a civic Welsh identity. But what they did then, people who were pushing this uh, identity were very clever because they then started positioning the Welsh language movement, particularly people who were not happy with the devolution settlement, people who were doing like graffiti and Kermaned and things like that. They were positioning these people as uh, extremist, language extremists or language nutters, and they were saying that these people have an ethnic conception of the nation, which is based on language, and is therefore exclusionary, because if you don't speak Welsh, apparently then you can't be Welsh. And so the narrative was pushed then that those people, these people like quote-unquote Welsh language uh, speakers, didn't view everyone else as being properly Welsh and sort of looked down on the rest of us. This was carried over, in particular, and uh, popularised by the brief and strategic emergence of the the Welsh version of the Welsh Mirror under the stewardship of an editor called Paul Starling, who basically started using the Welsh Mirror. I wonder why it emerged just as Labour's majority got dented in the uh, in the assembly. <laughs> this is um, a big coincidence, isn't uh, it? And it you just came, hard, like... you know, so it's weird. They never had one Welsh edition of the Welsh Mirror, you know, and then in 1999, like, have their biggest ever vote and Labour lose all their seats and they can't form a, co- can't form a government. He'd and then, been talking about it for years, he's <laughs> like, well, I better as well do it now. And then, uh, and then overnight, the Welsh Mirror emerges. It's, it's such a coincidence, I don't understand. Uh, and then, when Labour got the majority back, the Welsh Mirror disappears. I mean, it's, it's really strange, I don't see the connection. I mean, it's obviously, <laughs> it's a complete coincidence. The Welsh Mirror then emerges and basically devotes itself exclusively almost to demonising the Welsh language. It criticised the Eisteddfod. It called the Eisteddfod the festival of fear and hatred. It basically was... And it kept pushing this narrative that Welsh speakers were extremists, were language nutters that didn't like the rest of us in Wales and didn't think we were properly Welsh and things like that. And what happened then is that that got actually taken up by certain academics who sort of internalised this. And once academics... So what you have, you have this weird situation whereby the Welsh Mirror will make a ridiculous claim about the Welsh language. An academic who's writing about race in Wales will then use the Welsh Mirror as an example, which is rubbish, but they'll use the Welsh Mirror as an example of uh, an evidence of the fact that Welsh speakers are racist or exclusionary. Then the Welsh Mirror can say, well, an academic has actually said this, so it, become, yeah. it becomes from uh, like some random guy saying it, it becomes instituted as fact by the academic status, anyway. So, all what's the point of all this? All, all this is saying is that there is a narrative since devolution that has been pushed about... On the one hand, we've got the tension whereby the Welsh language is seen as being a good thing and everyone's got to accept it and apparently everyone does love it now. On the other hand, you've got a very unsubtle counter-narrative which is also saying that Welsh speakers are, are sort of nutters and exclusionary. And I think that has contributed to a very schizoid and weird relationship with the Welsh language that I've certainly noticed growing up in Porthcore and I noticed during my PhD research so I'd interview people and say what's your view of the Welsh language in the first in one sentence they'd say I love the Welsh language it's great you know we in a great we've got Welsh language schools you know um, it's fantastic blah blah in the next sentence the same person would say however you know I don't think you know we've got, we've got to be careful don't be like those nutters up North Wales they hate us you know down West Wales they hate us things like that um and I'm sure that, I mean, you've had, have you had any experiences like Ambridge or anything? Yeah, more well, like interpersonal, like, uh, you know, you, you tell people, like, you're learning Welsh quite, well, I'm almost 30, and, you know, it doesn't really have any um, benefit for me other than the enjoyment of learning it and experiencing, like, a culture and a country you live in. So, you know, you kind of met with a white bother or, like, more, it's just like a dead language, or, like, the, the dismissiveness of it. Interesting. Because it's not something that's especially in South Wales you know it's not something people immediately speak to each other in the streets and I was speaking to my um, tutor about this and he was saying that because he he learned um, quite a late age as well but in his house they strictly speak Welsh or you have like a Welsh network of friends so it almost becomes like as soon as you learn it and want to keep it intact and uh, keep the language going for yourself, you become like part of this network of people. Yeah. So then, like you're saying, it does almost inadvertently become exclusionary because of um, just the inavailability of places to use it. Like I, I use like um, like ATMs and uh, self checkout in Welsh and stuff just for a jolly. That's good to use it though. Mm-hmm. 
So a, a couple of points <clears throat> what, uh, when you were saying that um, you know Welsh language activists and Welsh speakers are kind of posited as reactionary and ethnic. Yeah. Um, but more than that, by it's not just othering them. It's also trying to elevate the anglophone sort of um, Welshness, you know, of the South as kind of cosmopolitan um, yeah. against it. So it's kind of you know elevating yourself whilst dragging the other through the dirt. Yeah, I think. Um, and another thing of kind of my experiences, um, and this might have something to do with the very kind of. Uh, weak transport links we have in Wales, the weak media we have. I definitely think it's about the tra- way. I definitely think yeah. these, these stereotypes can take hold because never people never go to North Wales. People never go to these places to see, well, actually, these people aren't lunatics. They're just people like everyone else. And I think but then, when sometimes when I go to North Wales, uh, my, my dad's from North Wales, I don't go very often, but when I do and I speak Welsh, they're also surprised that people from South Wales can speak Welsh. Yeah, so this is two, it's, there's two ways. Yeah, but you know there isn't sort of this kind of organic, holistic whole where we understand, you know, yeah, how people in North Wales live, how people in West Wales, how people in the South live. Yeah, so it's always another, isn't it? It's yeah. always like oh, them down there, them up yeah. north, and it's because we don't visit these places. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, yeah, so it's it's actually if you had a proper transport uh, network. We could, you know, we could visit places, and we wouldn't have this. We were saying one of the funny enough. This is a bit of a, a digression again. I'm sorry, but one of the reasons I love going to watch Wales away in football is because it's the only time you see lads from North Wales, West Wales, South Wales, and your know, Mid Wales actually, actually mingling, and they loving each other because because that's the only place. And it's, it's sadly sad that it has to happen in other countries, mm-hmm. but it's the only time that you see. Well, actually, that guy's even though he speaks. Welsh or he speaks English or you know they haven't got um, we've got loads in common like United by the football team we've got pretty much everyone like innocent football subculture like say music things like that so it doesn't matter if you live in Wrexham or you know Rill or Newport or Cardiff or the Ronda or whatever or, or Bangor you're all getting on really well and it's just something that wouldn't have happened so it's only through these actual physical human interactions that you can overcome stereotypes because that's how stereotypes and, and narratives get challenged is when you meet someone that bucks the trend and goes oh well Actually, I thought all Welsh speakers were nutters, but <laughs> these lads are, well, maybe they are, but in different like, that way. Like, you know, um, um, so Stephen May has said that it's a bit of an unspoken thing. It's a bit of an uncomfortable truth. But he says that the litmus test almost is that, he says, most big language speakers in most societies, even though they'll make lip service towards you know, the Welsh language, things like that, he says, they remain unconvinced of either the immediate need or the philosophical desirability of officially supported cultural and linguistic programmes for small languages. And it's through things like Welsh language translations that you see these little microaggressions and biases coming up against the Welsh language. They support the Welsh language, but I don't think we should have any literature or anything should be actually written in Welsh, Mm -hmm. because that's a waste of money. That's another way. That's a a subtle thing. The other unsettled one is, oh, you know, uh, and then obviously I was went up to North Wales and everyone in the pub was speaking English and then I, I came in, in and I walked in and they were speaking Welsh. We've got a, 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 and they beat me with pokus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about that. Right? So that, that implies that someone's actually can hear what language someone's speaking mm-hmm. through the walls of a pub before they walk yeah. in. So, oh, everyone's speaking English now. That's because uh, North, North Wales pubs got loads of events and stuff. And, and like, it's, they're actually like the Japanese walls. They're just paper. Yeah, <laughs> they, they walk through, they literally walk through the walls. So that's one, but that's one of the tropes, isn't it? Those are the subtle tropes and the microaggressions for the world. And it's a, these are the other ones I think is interesting, right? So Stephen May has compiled these things, which are like common comebacks, I would say. Maybe we've got the Welsh language. So he says, with institutionalisation, so now Welsh is used in government and it's used mm-hmm. to get ahead, things like that. He says, this, it's this. So actually seeing Welsh prompts hostility and it's about, it's quite subtle. And it's about utility. So... Whereas, again, think about Welsh used to be low status and they used to be associated with not getting ahead in life. People say, the two criticisms of Welsh are often, it's pointless, yeah? Mm. So people say to Nathan, they say, why are you learning that's a dead language? It's a waste of money, it's pointless, yeah? The other criticism is that, oh, Welsh, no, no, the other criticism is that, oh, Welsh speakers, if you speak Welsh, it gets you a job. So what is it? It can't be pointless and an and get you an advantage in life. I mean, it can't be. I mean, is it is it both? It's like it's like the people remember about immigrants 
coming over here, taking our jobs and being I on the dole at the same time. It's yeah. Schrodinger's immigrant. It's the same for the Welsh language. Um, and the other one is people say, oh, you know what? I don't like it. It's social engineering to bring, you know, to, to, to move the Welsh, to, you're artificially creating the Welsh language. And the argument against that is, how do you think it died in the first place? I mean, that is a, a massive act of social engineering in the first place. What was, the, what was banning Welsh if that's not social engineering? So bringing it back, it, you know, that social engineering, it's, it's not. It's, it, it's, it's rectifying something. So these are some of the common new tropes, the way that like, this invidious hostility to the Welsh language sort of people... It's like I, I hesitate to make the link between language and race. But people say, like in America, racism went underground. You know, People could no longer say the n-word or anything like that mm-hmm. but they could say these people mm-hmm. or they could make other ways of doing it, a little microaggression and that's what's happened i think in in post-evolution world so i think we've got we've got to be careful about this happy clappy idea that, that i think some people have a very unrealistically positive view of how everyone else perceives the language but what i think is very important is that people who are active in advocating for the language need to understand the strength of these narratives in places like South Wales where people have been exposed to these tropes about Welsh mm-hmm. speaking other for you know hundreds of years and they've evolved slightly so it's going to be very very hard to undo this fear of the Welsh language and I think the way that can be done is through you know more Welsh language schools more Welsh language education things like that um, but you need to be aware of these things really I've forgotten completely what the point of this podcast was apart from defending the Welsh language um, is there anything else you need to say or is there anything else you haven't covered a lot of this has been a bit ranty and a lot of it has been a bit you know academic-y but I mean I think this is the start of a series of things like so we've done stuff on the language we've done stuff on the, we're going to do we're going to do stuff in the media we're not going to do just one we're going to do a few we're going to do stuff in the economy but it's going to be a series so this is basically I want people to start thinking critically about how we speak about the language and how to think the Welsh language you can't think about a language or analyse a language without first considering the historical and political context within you know, within which that language exists. You can't understand the Welsh language without looking at how it's been discursively constructed, how it's been written about, because people don't have these opinions about the language out of nowhere. It's coming back to this idea of, you know, um, common sense assumptions that we make, you know, hegemony. Um, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say that it's been socially engineered the language to come back. I, I, I think you can make that argument. Yeah, it has, but, but people you, also you, need you to recognise to understand it. the reason why it is necessary to do so. Yeah. This wasn't something that was naturally dying, which has kind of been rectified. This is something that was tried to be murdered, that tried to be dragged through the dirt. This comes back to like the conceptions of the creation of modern nation states. It's like Rasputin. Can't get it. See the size of his oh, see, it's pickled penis and a Is it? Rasputin was a priest yeah, and he obviously he, he got busy with all those nobles women like Not but the they, nobles. But they um they pickled his willy in like this thing and obviously pickle something's gonna like shrivel up like mm-hmm. Is this still huge? It literally fills an entire glass like, <laughs> Absolutely, it's probably why he walked to a hunch. Earthquake, like. Um, anyway, um, we know. I mean, I know some very progressive people, or very people who are very sort of very well, very progressive people who still don't agree with anything I say about the Welsh language. They don't think that it's been pursued. They they have a real problem with it. So if you've got, I mean, if you if you have these thoughts about the Welsh language or if you've got any thoughts about it either way just let us know we want to start a debate we want to talk about these things you know if you if you don't if you think that the Welsh language has been socially engineered well you know come and tell us speak to us about it we'd love to have you on any shout outs uh, I'm going to give a shout out to my Welsh tutor Colin and my Welsh classmates uh, Leslie Michael and Kerry I think she might have quit <laughs> though she has been in a while I don't know what the other names are <laughs> I love the other people so. Big up. what about your chiropractor I haven't got one. Well, you need one. You need one, yeah. No, my, one. I was thinking of the osteopath, but it's like 30 quid. 30 quid or a debilitating discomfort. Well, yeah, <laughs> no. and then spend 30 quid on pizza. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a tough decision. Yeah. So how many shout-outs? Uh, yeah, I'm going to give a shout-out to uh, Rhys Moyne, actually. Um, Rhys I had a nice little direct message chat with him the other day. Really nice lad. Uh, friends. Friends. <laughs> like your music. That's me. Oh, Rhys from... Um... Unwrapping. Oh, yeah. right. Oh, this is the episode where we're going to finish with... Yeah. I feel like a DJ now. We're going to have some... <laughs> this episode is going to finish with some absolutely amazing Welsh language music, which, uh, contrary to popular belief, Welsh language music isn't just like... It's not just an old woman with an old <laughs> stovepipe hat 
playing a harp. Um, but that is the narrative and the stereotype by watching his music. Going to do something about sick band on Revan. What was the other one as well? As shout out to me. I can't think of any other than to my amazing family, um, to my boy Graham, my homie Graham, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, who wants a lift tonight. He just texts me, can you give me a lift? Like, can pick me up from Caffili? Not happening, no. mate. Sorry, I'm going to fourth call. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Over and out. Bye.
with candy. That's sick. In fact, I need an improved bit of gobble. And Greg Casserole, God, I can live. A casserole, 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 everything. They didn't get any exposure on Welsh language radio or television, which seems to me to be ridiculous. And also, most people in England and Scotland and Ireland think that Welsh music means Harry Seacombe, which is bad news indeed. But at least we've got three of them now on the tube. And the bands you're going to see are Anne Hrevin, a Kerf, and Dap Bluggy. And the only title I can be certain of is the Dap Bluggy title. Well, I knew it, George, with. 